This message was recorded October 29, 2023. The speaker is David Simpson. Now I want you to look in your Bibles in Ephesians, and we are in chapter number 2. I want you to take a pen or a pencil, and I want you to underline three words. So I want you to do that right now. So find you a pencil or a pen, and you take your Bible, and I want you to underline three words. I want you to look in verse number 4. So chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to underline in verse number 4, I want you to underline the word mercy. See it there? But God who is rich in mercy. Underline mercy. And then I want you to go just a few words further, and I want you to underline the word love. See it there? But God who is rich in mercy for His great love. And then I want you to go down to the end of verse number 5, and I want you to underline the word grace. By grace are you saved. That word will also be in verse number 7 and also in verse number 8. But we're just going to kind of walk along here. And you notice that I, as long as I've been preaching, we don't want to get in too big of a hurry. So we're going to just take these words and talk about them. Uh, you may not like to study that way, but, but that's the way I think we learn. And I enjoy it. So all I can do is what, what I enjoy doing with you in my preaching. Sometimes I give you a more detailed outline, but today we're really just going to talk about these first words that are here, and then I'm going to give you five truths about mercy toward the end of the message. So I want you to look with me, please, and why don't we read verses 1 through 5, and that'll kind of get us started. But you got those three words underlined, right? Mercy and love and grace. Look in verse number 1, and you... And then you'll notice that it's in italics, which means it's not really there. I talked about that last week. So I'm going to leave it out. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, or being dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our manner of life, in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But, but God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were or being dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace are you saved. Like a gifted artist takes light shades and dark shades and he paints a beautiful scene of the sky or she of a brook or the artist of the meadow. Paul looked at the dark, dark backdrop in verses 1 through 3 in order to illustrate the beauty and the glory and the magnificence of God's mercy, of God's love and God's grace, that the eternal God in the person of Jesus Christ would take on flesh, we see this mercy. Then he obeyed God's law and he satisfied his justice 
and he endured all the penalties of the law in his life and suffered all the penalties in his death and brought in this everlasting righteousness that is spoken of both in Psalms and in Daniel. And this is that amazement of mercy. Then that the heavenly father filling the place of judge that he would gladly accept and freely impute that righteousness to the account of his elect so that by and through and at and in connection with Christ and his cross justify them in his eyes. That is the beauty of grace. And no wonder Paul would exclaim like that in Colossians to the congregation, which is the parallel letter to the Ephesian letter in chapter 3 and verse 11, Christ is all. He's everything. So now I want you to jump with me, please, into our passage, and let's talk about the few words that we find in verse number 4. You begin with a conjunction, which is a connecting word, but, and it is the Greek conjunction de, or de, or de, and it pairs with a conjunction that he began the chapter with. Look back to the very first word, and, that is chi in the original language, and he has them as a pair together. So he says, and, and then that and is followed by a series of modifiers. And then the but is going to be to make a contrast with what he just said. So the fivefold description are modifiers that he used here. Speaks of the sinner being in bondage to death, being in bondage to the world, being in bondage to the prince of darkness, he calls the power of the air, in bondage to the flesh, and in bondage to wrath. So I ask you, we began with talking about this a little bit last week, would you conclude from those five things, looking at them honestly, would you conclude that Paul's description of man's spiritual ability being a disability, is it a partial disability or is it a total disability? Wouldn't you say that it's a total disability? I mean, he's in bondage. How are you going to get away from death? You can ask a dead man if he wants to live, but a dead man cannot answer. You can ask a dead man if he wants to become religious. He'll do that because it's natural to him. But the spiritually dead man can do nothing. Therefore, we must have a sovereign Savior. One that just gives you an opportunity will not work. And that's exactly what we're being told here. But God, that's the noun. Remember me telling you that last week? That's the noun of these 10 verses. And the verb is, He hath quickened us together. And notice it was done while we were dead. So these two conjunctions go together. And, and then you have the five modifiers, but that is what is called a contrastive conjunction. And it means something like on the other hand. So he says, and you, and then he gives those five modifying statements. And then he says, but are on the other hand. 
On the other hand, it's like saying vinegar is tart, but honey is sweet. It's like saying Death Valley is hot. On the other hand, the Teton Mountains are cold. It's like saying a turtle is slow. On the other hand, a rabbit is fast. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to Peter, The Spirit truly is ready, but on the other hand, the flesh is weak. One of the great places in the Bible to study is in Hebrews 10. And you remember in Hebrews 10, he talks about the priest who offered sacrifices, same sacrifices over and over every day. And those sacrifices could never take away sin. What does he begin verse 12 with? But on the other hand, this man talking about Jesus Christ and then talked about his sacrifice that once and for all took away the sins of all the people that he died for. So in our text, Paul contrasts God's wrath and God's mercy. See at the very end of verse number three, wrath. And then when he steps into verse number four, mercy. So the very first thing, he wants to contrast those two things. But I think more than that, he is contrasting the five statements of bondage with God's mercy and God's love and God's grace. Now, if you go to grace and love and mercy and you don't understand or don't take into account the blackness of the picture of bondage, you don't understand mercy and love and grace. So if you just go to Ephesians 2.8 without taking into account what he has said before, you're taking something out of its context. So when he uses that little word, but, doesn't sound like much to us, but it's a very important word. But, and then what's the word that follows that conjunction? On the other hand, God. God, the one and the only God, as opposed to the many gods that these Gentiles had grown up with. In Ephesus, they had gods on every corner. They had gods for all the seasons. They had gods for every kind of problem. But he's talking about this one God, this God who is eternal and immutable, this God who is holy in himself, who is righteous in his works, who is just in his acts, this God who possesses purpose and love and kindness, this God who judges sin and saves the sinner, this God who is the creator of the universe, this God who rules in the affairs of men, who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who delivers his people from evil and temptation, who walks with them through the trials of life, the God who fails not to save both elect Jews and save Gentiles. This God, this God that I've described, Paul said in chapter number one, that God, but God who is rich in mercy. Now, again, this little pronoun, who is really own in its being, God being rich in mercy. God in himself. It's a statement of cause because God is rich in mercy. But God lives in the state of mercy. 
God lives in the state of being, a being of mercy. Mercy is an immutable truth about God. Mercy is a beautiful word. We're going to sing a hymn in just a few moments about mercy. Mercy is a wonderful word. But you'll notice that he said rich in mercy. So let me take that word first. The Greek word is ploesis, and it's an adjective, and it's describing mercy. Maybe one of the best places to see mercy is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, where it says, Christ, though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. Think about it now. He was rich in heaven, had everything. No wants, no needs, no hunger, no thirst, nobody harassing him, nobody lying about him, nobody wanting to kill him, had everything. Rich, for your sake. That's substitution. For your sake. That's mercy. For your sake. He became poor, took on flesh, lived among us, lied about, mistreated, nailed to a cross, rich. There's another place in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. I like the amplified version, so this is it. As for the rich of this world, charge them not to be proud and arrogant and contemptuous of others, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but God who richly and ceaselessly provides for us everything for our enjoyment. So there is the description of his riches. Ceaselessly does he provide. The word mercy, mercies, and merciful appear 352 times in the scriptures. The word for mercy is elias, and it's a word that basically means pity. What's the difference between the word mercy and the word grace? The word grace is charis. The word for mercy is elias. I would simply give you two words. This is probably not all of it. I'm sure it's not. But think of mercy as having to do with pity and grace having to do with provision. Two little words beginning with P that maybe that'll lock in your mind. So mercy is God having pity on us. And grace is that God provided for us. So he's going to move from talking about God's mercy to talking about God's grace, is he not? So he talks about God's pity for us and then God's grace for us. But I'd say this to you, that where there is mercy, there is grace. Where there is grace, there is mercy. We can use the words almost synonymous with each other. But in our paragraph, mercy and love and grace are inseparable. They are linked together. So now we're going to focus on our five truths concerning mercy. That's all I'm going to say from this passage, but God who is rich in mercy. So I want you to go with me to the Old Testament. So I want you to go all the way back to the second book of the Bible and that is the book of Exodus. Not a passage you're unfamiliar with, but one you should never, ever forget. Exodus 33. Exodus 33. In verse 13, Moses is speaking to God, and he makes a petition to God in verse 13. So 33, 13. In my Bible, it's the third line down. He said, Show me now thy way. What is the way of Jehovah? What is the way of God? 
But if you come on down to verse 18, he changes the petition a little bit. And he said, show me thy glory. Show me thy way. Show me thy glory. And then Jehovah speaks, God speaks, verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Because mercy is declared in chapter 33, there is mercy to be displayed in chapter 34. So you always have to link these things together. So the first thing that I say to you is that God's mercy is definite. I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. It is definite. If it's definite, that means that it is particular. It is limited, if you please. God's mercy is directed toward those whom he shows mercy. And then you know that Paul uses this phrase in Romans chapter 9 to declare the sovereignty of God in justification. So the first thing you need to know is God's mercy is definite. And the second thing in chapter 34 God's mercy is irreplaceable. Look what he says in verse number seven. Well, let me read six and seven. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering. So when he brings in long-suffering, he's bringing in his, his forbearance and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. Now, if you come to chapter 34, without taking into account chapter 33, you have ripped it out of its context. And you cannot do that, not in be a student of the Bible. But he says, God keeps mercy for thousands. Not everybody, not everybody, but he has mercy saving mercy for thousands, for many, many people. What does he mean when he says, and will by no means clear the guilty? It means that God does not simply shut his eyes to sin. God required a sacrifice. And the sacrifices, all of them together, that they would make could save nobody, but they were all a picture and pointed to Christ and his cross, and that was the way they would be saved. How did Moses respond to this message? Look what he said in verse number 8, 34, 8. Moses made haste, he was quick, and he bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. So he bowed and he worshiped. He worshiped at the feet of the sovereign God who had mercy for thousands. So I say to you that God's Mercy is definite in chapter 33. I say to you that God's mercy is irreplaceable because there's no other way for a sinner to be saved. That's what he means. He'll by no means clear the guilty. There had to be a way to remove guilt. That's by the blood sacrifice. The third thing I say to you is that God's mercy and his truth met in Jesus Christ. So I want you to turn with me to Psalms. So keep going to your right. So you find Psalms, and when you get to Psalms, I want you to go to Psalm 85, and I want you to look at verse number 10. You might want to 
circle the 10 or underline the verse because this is a very important little verse. Mercy and truth, Psalm 85, 10, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now these things in many ways are opposites. If God looked at you only with truth, there'd be no salvation, right? If he looked at you only with truth, there'd be no salvation. But he also has to bring mercy into the picture in order to save us. So mercy and truth had to meet together, and they met together in the person of Jesus Christ. So when it tells us in Romans 3.26 that God is both just and justifier, those two things have met together. His attribute of justice and his work as justifier met, that is, the meeting of his mercy and his truth, his righteous and his peace, and they have met together and come bringing peace to those for whom he purposed it. They have met together. So mercy and truth always have to meet together. And then I kept this close together in Psalm 86. This would be number four. God's mercy is abundant. So God's mercy is definite. God's mercy is irreplaceable. God's mercy and His truth met in Christ. And then in Psalm 86, rather, and in verse number 15, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious and long-suffering. And then I like this little word, plenteous in mercy and truth. The word plenteous is a Hebrew just a little word, rav, is the way we would pronounce it. And it's used over 450 times in the Old Testament. It's translated over 200 times by the word many and much. And here, of course, it means plenteous. It's used, for example, in Genesis 30 and verse 43, where it says that Jacob prospered and owned large, there's our word rav, large flocks. Doesn't say how many, but large flocks. It's also used in Exodus chapter 5 where Pharaoh spoke to Moses and he said the people are numerous. So there were, there were actually several million of them. There wasn't a small number. There were several million of them and he says they were numerous. So God's mercy, I say to you, is abundant. It is sufficient and efficient to accomplish all that God willed it to accomplish. And then think of this, not one bit, not one drop, not one fraction of God's mercy will fall to the wayside. While it is plenteous, there's not too much. It's just enough. There's just enough mercy to save everybody that he purposed to save. And then there's one more thing I need you to turn with me to Romans 9, which I've referred to. And I want you to see in Romans 9 in the New Testament how Paul puts this together. Romans chapter 9. So the last thing I say to you, not only is God's mercy definite, and not only is God's mercy irreplaceable, and not only is, did it meet in uh, Jesus Christ, and is it abundant, but finally God's mercy is sovereign. It must be sovereign. Look in verse number 20 of chapter 9 in Romans. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Let me stop here. What we're about to see is a potter. We go to the 
potter's house and the potter with his will and he has a lump of clay and he takes that clay and that will and he begins to shape with his hands and that clay and the water, I guess, uh, the liquid of the water, I guess it's water that's on that clay and it begins to form it. So he said in verse 21, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. So the first illustration of God's sovereignty is the potter and the clay. And the second thing that he says about God's mercy and his sovereignty is that it is God's forbearance. In verse number 22, what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known this little phrase, endured with much long suffering, his forbearance, his forbearing. That means that he put off, he delayed bringing judgment. The vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. So what he is illustrating is God's sovereignty in the exercise of his mercy through the potter and the clay, through his forbearance. And that forbearance is so important that Peter said that the forbearance of God is salvation. Even as our brother Paul also, in the wisdom that God gave to him, has written, and that, of course, is in Romans 3.25, also in 9.22. And then the word fitted, look at that word fitted here. That word means to prepare for a purpose. And that can either be translated as a passive verb, I've talked about it before, or as a middle voice verb. If it is a passive verb, then it means God did it all. If it is a middle voice, then it means that God did it, but the sinner was also involved in it. The context might lend to be because Pharaoh hardened his heart and also God hardened his heart to being a middle voice. But I've thought about this and looked at this and I've decided that it's probably better to consider this to be a passive because of the context that is here. These vessels of wrath are fitted or prepared for this purpose, and there is no difference between them. Fitted to destruction. Let me go on to verse number 23. It is illustrated not only by the potter and the clay and God's forbearance, but it's also illustrated by God's predestination. Verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore or before prepared unto glory. Afore prepared is one word, and it means exactly what you think it does. It means to be prepared ahead of time. Paul doesn't take us back to eternity to tell us that's what he's talking about. But we know, for example, from what Peter said, that known unto God are all his works from the foundation or the beginning of the world, that God has always known whom he would save and whom he would not save. There's nothing that God is doing that he's making up as he goes. God's not deciding today what he's going to do tomorrow. He's not going to decide what he's going to do with my life today. He already knows. It, it's written out. Now, does that take accountability out of my hands? It does not. I'm still accountable 
for the breath that he has given me and the minutes that he has given me. Yes, but God knows. God is predestined what he is doing. And so aforetime he has prepared. Let me try to put this together. There are three comparisons that we see here. First of all, you have the vessels of wrath compared to or contrasted with the vessels of mercy. You have fitted unto destruction and prepared unto glory. And then you have this, God fitted, God prepared. In light of this, I must side with those concluding that this is a passive voice verb that God is the one who is doing all of this and he is sovereign in everything he does on our retirement trip. I can't keep from going back to it because it's such an exciting time to me. I retired on the 28th day of August. We pulled out of town that day. That was a Wednesday. By Monday morning, which had become Labor Day, we left early on, at least as early for us, it was 545, we left early on that morning, leaving from Indianapolis. It was pitch dark, pitch black. We drove up through the west side of Indianapolis. We jumped onto Interstate 70, and we began to head west. And we drove through the western side of Indiana into the eastern side of Illinois. And we were well into Illinois when the sun came up to our back. And as the sun shone across there, I can still see it in my mind, the brightness of the cornfields and the sun that lay upon the many hay bales that we saw. The tractors and the barns were glistening in the morning dew and the colors of the mixtures of the orange and the yellow and the red together. The sky was clear and in our environment and in our truck, all was well. That's what we see in our passage. It's dark, dead in trespasses and sins walked according to the course of this world, under the influence and the power of the spirit of darkness, influenced by our own flesh, and walked as and lived among the children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy. There's the brightness. So now we turn our minds from that blackness. God being rich in mercy. Streams of mercy never ceasing. What do they do? They call for songs of loudest praise. 